Welcome back to What's the History. Hello. How is everybody? Are you all good? We always ask this at the start of episodes. We want you to respond. Yeah, I'd like out loud. It would be nice if people could be like, fine. But we probably cut across them immediately, being like, <laughs> just no time to respond. <laughs> God bless them. Well, I suppose uh, this week has been a bit sobering for everybody across Europe. Um, yeah. You know, it's a pretty sad time at the moment. Pretty scary. It's scary. It's frightening. It's, there's a lot of things I think that, um, like, I think a lot of us knew that this was escalating and it was coming and it's been escalating for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I still think people were shocked, if that makes sense. It was kind of expected. It was escalating. Um, but at the same time that when the act was actually done, mm. people were like, whoa, okay. Um, yeah, it's been the, the case from a lot of people in Ukraine. A lot of people, um, you know, assumed that it wasn't happening, even though there were warnings i suppose from intelligence coming in across the world you know we were sensing it coming but it's just unbelievable i suppose and it's happened yeah and vladimir putin has officially invaded uh the ukraine yeah so i suppose this is going to be a big part of today's discussion yeah on the podcast um <clears throat> i suppose we wanted to because we'll, we'll inevitably get asked it a lot by students actually what's actually going on they'll want to understand i think people like even people who have a basic grasp of what's happening i think most people do but i think at the same time there's a lot more to it than just what you're seeing on the news there's a lot more and we're seeing see the issue is i, I was on um the journal.ie for example reading the comments section and so many of the comments are some of them are really factual and people know their stuff mm. but so many of them then are misguided or based in like things that are just not factual and a lot of ignorance out there. I'm there afraid. is a lot of ignorance out there. Like, but I sound like insulting. Oh, yeah, I don't think it's actually purposeful. And mm. I myself, while I had a basic knowledge of a lot of this, um, I went off and spent the last few days, really, since it happened, just really deeply researching it. Um, we were on midterm, so I had time to do that. And, like, really lost, like, hours and hours and hours and hours to just delving into this. So we wanted to cover it today because... We put it out there that we could do this episode and got a few messages from people asking, like, yeah, could you explain the background to it and why it's happening? What is actually happening? What potentially might happen in the future? Obviously, we don't know this stuff, but we can kind of just um, give our, our own thoughts mm. on it. And um, hopefully this will be some help. So what I'm going to do is talk about what happened the other day, talk about the historical kind of context of it. Where did it come from? What led up to this? What is Putin essentially trying to do? What's the what's his aim here? Um, what might happen? And then at the end, I'll close it off with how Ireland is going to be potentially affected or what does it mean for Ireland as well? Just for our listeners, because we're living in Ireland and we often wonder in situations like this, we're in the European Union, we're not a member of NATO. Our position here is a little bit complex. So I want to explain that as well. And that's essentially what I will be doing today. Perfect. With help from my lovely assistant. I'll just be here to feedback. <laughs> my topic is it's it's relatable, but it goes back a little further in time. Okay. But it is based uh, in Russia. Oh, I'm interested. Mm. Okay, so um, I'll start <clears throat> off just here with what happened, I guess, uh, for the invasion. Um, we've all of us have been watching the news. We're kind of aware this is an unfolding situation as well. So by the time this podcast is out in a week or two, more things are going to have happened. So sure. where it's very much of the moment. Um. This was escalating. I suppose we could even say by the end of January, for example, Russia had about 130,000 troops stationed around Ukraine's borders. So they were building up the military, putting it on the borders. Um, on Monday, February 21st, uh, 
Putin recognized the independence of the two breakaway regions. I'll talk about them today, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Uh, the two regions have been under the control of a Moscow-backed militia since 2014. So I'll talk about that as well and what that means. <clears throat> On February 22nd, um, US President Joe Biden said they believed Russia was planning a full-scale attack and that Kiev, the capital city and home to 3 million people, would be the main target. Okay. Um, also on Tuesday, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz stopped the approval process for the Nord Stream. I'm going to talk about the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as well later on. Um, and then finally, on Thursday, February 24th, Russia launched a full-scale attack on Ukraine. So airstrikes targeted cities across the country and troops moved towards Kiev, the capital. The assault hit the main commercial airport. Um, and Russian paratroopers appeared to be in control of, of a, a place called Hostomel as well. So by Friday, they had invaded Ukraine on all sides. Russian troops and armoured vehicles entered parts of Ukraine's capital. Ukraine said it destroyed three bridges on the northern approach to the capital to slow the Russian advance. Okay, so that's kind of where we were at um, <clears throat> at the beginning of this conflict. And I got that from the Globe and Mail. Um, it was They did a very good explanation of the conflict on Twitter where a lot of the information actually is very useful. Twitter is proving to be somewhat useful throughout this. Um, and I will say that if you are in a position at the moment listening to this and you do really want to understand it, it's always helpful to have maps. I find maps of Europe, um, even pulling up on Google a map of Europe, a map of um, NATO membership would be helpful, a map of EU membership. I thought, <clears throat> I mean, for my masters and i'll get to that in a minute in international relations i did a lot of it on the eu and eu membership but i was even confused about who and who isn't a member of the eu at times i forget and then you're talking about the council of europe you're talking about nato you're talking about lots of different organizations so i had to kind of jump um from one to the other to remember because they are all very important as well so <clears throat> i'm going to start by going all the way back to the second world war and that's where why my research took me about four days <laughs> um because this is really where where it all you well you could go back even further but I won't because we need to get out of here at some point this evening. So the USSR right we start there established in 1922 December 30th 1922 to be exact. It was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics and eventually it encompassed 15 republics. We call them republics, but government was still really centralised. So um, following Marxist socialism in theory, but later became communist governments, um, led by the party's Politburo and headed by the general secretary. So Stalin um, was obviously the most kind of um, important of these. So what are those former 15 Soviet republics? And they're very important in this conflict as well. So, of course, Russia which is now the Russian Federation, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, which is now called Belarus, Uzbekistan, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Moldova, which I'll speak about as well, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, the Baltic States, and Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, which have been in the news quite a lot as well. So all of those are the 15 former Soviet states. We call them kind of post-Soviet states, and they're <clears throat> they're really important to know in this conflict because this is where a lot of the issue is coming from. During the war, the Second World War, the USSR, under Stalin, obviously, it aligned itself with the Allies because they faced a common enemy, not because they had anything in common ideologically. In fact, I would say that um, really the Allies had more in common ideologically in a lot of ways with Hitler or economically, so like capitalist countries opposed to communism. 
the issue was that Hitler just invaded left, right and centre. Literally, he just, he opened a war in the West, he opened a war in the East. He blazed through Europe, through the Low Countries, into France. He attacked Britain from the air. He eventually goes east as well. He initially invades Poland, we know that. And then he invades Russia in Operation Barbarossa, or possibly the stupidest yeah, mistake ever made by anyone stupid, ever. Yeah. Stupid. So, like I just said, economically, Hitler and the Allies probably have more in common than they did with Stalin. Because the West, yes, they hate Hitler. But what they hate most of all is communism. Absolutely despise it not only religious institutions despise it but um, political institutions as well so when the war ends and the common enemy is defeated there's obvious tension between the soviets um and the eastern bloc and it's handy to think of it that way for a while the eastern bloc versus the western bloc so their economic policies were extremely opposed to one another they're very very different the western bloc wants to promote capitalism the eastern bloc wants to promote promote communism so, because there's tensions there and um, they're in close proximity to each other, in 1949, NATO is established, okay, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. The original members of NATO, Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Iceland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, the UK, the UK and the US. Okay. And obviously since then, ma- membership has massively grown. But we'll get to that because that's a problem. Free pins. <laughs> so the key to this part, I suppose, here is understanding the need for collective security in Europe in a very tense geopolitical landscape. So following the Second World War, it's just, it's tense. And you had, um, you know, before the First World War, you had a kind of a balance of power that was disrupted. It was disrupted throughout the first part of the 20th century. Now you've got this kind of, um, really unsure, like uncertain geopolitical landscape, and that's why NATO was set up. The idea of collective, collective defense, really. Now, U.S. politics during this time is characterized by what they called a policy of containment, and that's kind of outlined in the Truman Doctrine of nineteen forty-seven. It implied support for any country that they felt was threatened by communism, namely countries like Turkey and Greece. Um. And this doesn't go down well with the Soviets because it's basically like the US saying, if anybody picks on these countries, you know, we've got their back. And the Soviets don't like that because they see that as rather aggressive. So in response to NATO, which the Soviets don't like, they established their own version of it, which is called the Warsaw Pact. So it that's their collective defense treaty. OK, members of the Warsaw Pact are the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Hungary, Poland and Romania. OK. Again, thinking about these countries now is going to be helpful too because you'll see that these countries have obviously, some of them have switched sides, yeah, you know? Yeah, of course. Now, <clears throat> um, I won't go into the ins and outs of the Cold War. I was going to, but realised <laughs> that it would take... <laughs> the Cold War is like 50 years of history, so I was like, mm, maybe not. Um, they had erased the space. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly that. It was a, it was a, it was a period of real tension between mm. East and West characterised by things, regional conflicts in proxy wars, the Korean War, obviously yeah. the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, they both developed their nuclear arsenals, which is very important, very especially for now and terrifying. Um, they both engaged in espionage, which is quite exciting. I used to and think cool. espionage meant something else. What did you think it meant? Just look at me a second. Oh, okay. She can't say it on the podcast, basically. All right, we'll 
swiftly move on there, there was the space race um and there was uh, also like the use of propaganda so it just became this um this really kind of passive aggressive period of history mm-hmm. um now in the east the, the the economies of the um eastern bloc they really stagnated which led eventually in 1989 to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Iron Curtain and the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And this led then to the independence of its constituent republics. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we need to look at a few things. The post-Soviet states, which I've mentioned um, there when I listed out the 15 of them, the European Union, we look at the, the EU and its role, NATO, and the Partnership for Peace, which I'll get to too, the Council of Europe, and uh, just Russia, I suppose, and how when it kind of came out of the collapse of the Soviet Union, it was fine for a while, and then Putin obviously came into power, and we it really moved towards um, becoming authoritarian once more. And I'll talk about that and how that kind of happened. Okay, so before I can before I talk about Russia, we need to talk about the EU. The EU is developing itself almost as a global superpower and so how did that happen and basically what do nato and the eu we're using them very interchangeably lately but obviously they are different so the eu had six founding members belgium france west germany italy luxembourg and the netherlands but there are 27 countries now in the eu okay with the exception of course of great britain (laughs) are you lads listening to this (laughs) um (laughs) So, but it is, the issue is that it was expanding eastwards, notably having the Baltic states, so Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, as members since 2004. So the issue with that is obviously Putin sees these countries, as he calls it within the Soviet sphere of influence, that it's too close to home for him. He doesn't like it. Now, notably, and this is important too, Ukraine and Georgia are not yet members of the EU. But they're kind of on the road to becoming members by 2024, which obviously Putin really does not want. Um, now, however he feels about um, the EU, we'll get to NATO in a while. Um, I should, I suppose, mention other bodies like the Council of Europe. So the Council of Europe, you'll kind of hear them being discussed in this conflict as well. The Council of Europe is supposed to uphold human rights and democracy in Europe. Russia is actually a member of the Council of Europe, uh, but it is currently suspended because it's been a bad, bad boy. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the Council of Europe, it's important. It can't make binding laws, but it can enforce international agreements made by European states. The best known bodies of the Council of Europe are the European Court of Human Rights, which enforces the European Convention um, on Human Rights as well. So you've probably heard these things. In essence, though, um, at the moment, they're they're rather powerless and, and that's becoming kind of increasingly obvious that their role is is not i mean they, they just can't really enforce you can they can be ignored essentially is what i mean very similar sometimes to the united nations as well now i should also mention i suppose the ocse which is the organization for security and cooperation in europe um and that's concerned with arms control security counterterrorism, um and it's, it's it's again where the Council of Europe is all about human rights. This was about kind of cooperation, but again, not particularly. Um, in this conflict, you'll hear it being mentioned, but the the key player is NATO. So I'm going to move on to NATO. NATO was established in 1949 following World War Two. It currently has 30 members <clears throat> from an original 12, so it has grown substantially. 
Um, it has always been about collective security and mutual defence, and that's important. Article 5, I'll get to the articles of NATO in a minute. Um, at the moment, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Georgia and the Ukraine, sorry, and Ukraine, not the Ukraine, they don't like that, um, recognised as aspiring members. So they're not, they're not members, which is, which is key as well. They are looking to join. That's one of, um, I'll talk with Zelensky as well in a while, but one of when he came to power, while he wanted to make kind of peace with Russia and didn't want this conflict, obviously, uh, one of the things that he was very vocal about was uh, seeking to join the European Union and NATO, which obviously Putin was raging about. Like he really didn't raging. want to hear this. And he doesn't want um, Ukraine being a member of NATO, mm. obviously. So just really, really angry about this. Um, NATO did recognize Ukraine as an aspiring member. It, it, It's unlikely. I don't know would they have allowed Ukraine to join NATO. It's not an impossibility, but it looked unlikely. Now, um, what there is something besides NATO called the Partnership for Peace. Now, the Partnership for Peace is like kind of like a quasi membership of NATO. This is per Wikipedia here. It's aimed at creating trust between NATO and other states in Europe and the former Soviet Union. So essentially, NATO knows there are some states in Europe that don't really want to join as full members of NATO, us included. We're we're one. And they kind of think, okay, well, we you can be like a friend of NATO, but we'll call it like um we need to call it something official. So that's exactly what the Partnership for Peace is. I like it. Now, Russia is actually a member of the Partnership for Peace since 1994. And Putin wouldn't have much interest in it. But the the, the Ireland obviously a member as well, um <clears throat> of the Partnership for Peace. And the issue is that the Partnership for Peace has been a stepping stone for states to become full NATO members. So lots of states that were Partnership for Peace states became full NATO states. So the Baltic states were PFP members, for example. Um, notably, Ukraine is a Partnership for Peace member. Okay. So NATO is getting closer and closer um, <clears throat> to Putin and he doesn't like it. But why is Ukraine such the the issue? And that's what we'll look at too. Like why, um, even with Georgia, when there was obviously the invasion of Georgia, the world didn't quite react the way we've reacted to this. And we need to look at why that is. But before all of that, we're going to take a quick look at Putin himself. Because again, why him out of the, all the leaders that there have been in Russia since the, the collapse of the Soviet Union? There haven't been many actually because he's been in power for so long. Um, Putin is a former Russian intelligence officer. Um, I think that's relevant in lots of ways. He used to work with the KGB, for example, because I think it just makes him really, really tough, like a really tough guy. Um, so he's been the president since 2012, but he was also president from 1999 to 2008. He was the prime minister from 1999 to 2000 and from 2008 to 2012. Essentially, he's either been president or prime minister. And the reason for that is just pure shenanigans. Like he basically, it was it was illegal. At, you know, there was um, limits on the amount of time mm. you could be either. So he was hopping from one to the other. It's clever, isn't it? Um, yeah. So he's the second longest serving European president after his BFF by the looks of it Alexander um, Lukashenko the president of Bulgaria um, Belarus sorry excuse me so after the fall of communism um, in Europe there was a brief or in Russia it's a, there was a brief move towards democracy 
but um, under Boris Yeltsin. But when Putin succeeded um, Yeltsin, it became clear that he had his eyes on authoritarianism. So he could be ruling, like he's made it now um, into Soviet law that he could be ruling until the year 2036, um, which is a long way off in the future. You know, he was born in 1952. He's 70 this year. Um, I could look into his relationship with the Russian oligarchs and all of that stuff and the amount of corruption and all of that in Russia. But I want to focus really on, on this um, conflict with Ukraine. So we we'll look at his foreign policy. Um, I mentioned before what the Kremlin and Putin see as the Soviet sphere of influence, which is essentially the post-Soviet states. So they actually refer to these states, they call them near abroad. So they see them as um, intrinsically linked to Russia. Um I'll focus here mainly on Russia's relationship with Georgia and Ukraine. If you if we look at the color revolutions, for example, so we had the Rose Revolution in Georgia in November 2003. Um, so the president at the time, I think it's Shiver, it wasn't a Shiver Nazi, he was ousted and it marked the end of the Soviet era in Georgia. Okay, 2003. It began a period of new parliamentary and presidential elections and it established the United Nations, uh, sorry, the United National Movement as the dominant ruling party. So the United National Movement became the dominant ruling party in Georgia. Georgia then became more Western. So they became European and Euro-Atlantic um, kind of, they wanted more European and Euro-Atlantic integration. And that became its main priority, which Putin really didn't like, because, again, it's on his doorstep. Um, so he invaded Georgia in 2008. Now, um, after Georgia declared its independence in 1991, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were areas of Georgia which were dominated by Russian separatists. And this is the same issue we have in Ukraine. So the fighting lasted 12 days and a ceasefire was negotiated eventually by the French president at the time, Nicolas Sarkozy. The trouble was mainly over two regions. OK, and this is in Georgia. So there's two regions, the Russian backed regions of South Oss Oss I think it's Ossetia. Um, I've never actually I must look up a pronunciation of some of my pronunciations could be very, very bad. And I'm, I apologize to anybody um, who might be listening to this. South Ossetia and Abka Abkhazia, I think it is. So these two regions, South Ossetia and Abkhazia, um, there were lots of ethnic Georgians displaced, which is a form of ethnic cleansing, you know. Um, so these areas, lots, lots and lots of um, ethnic Georgians displaced from these regions. Now, the they're still contested to this day because Russia recognizes South Ossetia and Abkhazia as independent. OK, um, and obviously Georgia doesn't, though it has no control now in the areas. So they are there are Russian military bases there, for example. They've become de facto states, which means that they do exist, but their difference between de facto is that they're recognised um, not in a legally binding sense, as opposed to de jure, which means um, de jure means they're recognised by law. So most countries don't recognise South Ossetia or Abkhazia as independent states. Georgia certainly doesn't. Russia does. The issue is that they are controlled by Russia, whether um that and that's what the problem is. And this is exactly it's why this is important is because it's such an important precursor to what's happened in Ukraine, because it's such a similar thing. Um, But why is Ukraine even more important? Now, he didn't end up invading like all of Georgia. 
he 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 essentially got what he wanted in Georgia and then they backed off. Um so why is he, what is he doing in Ukraine? And why is it so important to him? And I suppose we need to look to what the climate was like in Ukraine prior to all of this. <clears throat> so um why is Ukraine so important to Putin? Right. Well, there's a number of things. I'll try to explain the mirror as best I can. It's complicated, so bear with me. Um, one thing, and I think this is really important for people to understand, Putin pursues kind of what we call revisionist policies. So I've mentioned the collapse of the USSR in 1991 and America at the time emerged as the dominant world superpower. Um, it's a real source of kind of irritation, and humiliation to Putin that Russia looked very weak, I suppose, at this time. Um, he's been trying to reassert their dominance on the global stage, which he, he has done. Um, but the issue, the spread of NATO into the Baltic states is obviously a huge source of irritation to him. So the fact that the Baltic states are NATO members um, has has been, you know, something that he he's really uncomfortable with. Ukraine, because it's a big country, it had mostly behaved itself in Putin's eyes because until the Orange Revolution in 2004 and the ousting of Viktor Yanukovych, 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 Yanukovych. I've heard his name said so many times over the last few days and Sounds I'm still like struggling Nadal with it. What I find hard here is that he, Viktor Yanukovych and his opponent have really really similar names and that's what confuses me so much but Viktor Yanukovych was ousted in 2014 and he would have been quite pro-Russian um and that's when Putin's alarm bell started going off because when when he was ousted and the Ukraine then started acting like they wanted closer ties with the West alarm bells are going off in Russia because they're going this is right on our doorstep this is a country that we need um strategically um and that's the thing. While they're pursuing this kind of revisionist policy of of going back to kind of traditional imperial designs, um, they also have strategic reasons. So one of these reasons, and this became an issue in 2014 as well, is Crimea. So Crimea is a peninsula at the bottom of Ukraine. It's made up of mostly ethnic Russians, but of course, its status is contentious to this day. We know that Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 following um, a declaration of independence from Crimea. So they want they wanted a reunification with Russia. They had a, a treaty um, or a vote, sorry, referendum, I should say, vote. Th- this was not recognized at the time by Ukraine or most countries, but it remains under Russian control, Crimea. Now, why? Because a key city is Sevastopol in Crimea. There's a port there. Um, and it is it gives Russia access to the Black Sea. Okay. Now this is crucial for the Russians because it's their only access to a warm water port. It is home to their Black Sea fleet as well. So if Russians um lost the access to this, they lose the ability to defend themselves from anyone attacking via the Black Sea. And they can also, of course, launch their own attacks should the need arise. Um, Like, for example, invading the remainder of Ukraine, which is exactly what they did. They used um, they used troops from Crimea. That's exactly what they did. So um, Russia was leasing the port actually so from from the ukrainian sevastopol and they were supposed to lease it until 2042 so they were allowed to have their fleet there 
But when um, Yanukovych was ousted in 2014, they were concerned that Ukraine would break the lease then because their their support in government is gone. So the, and the new um, the new regime that came in was more pro West, and they might have pressure from the West to cut off uh, Russia's access to the Black Sea. Mm. So that's why Crimea became this really important area, and why they pounced on it in twenty fourteen really, really quickly. So Crimea is a huge part of that, but there are other areas in Ukraine as well where Russian separatists have demanded independence. So Crimea was one of them, but notably in the Donbas region in the southeast of Ukraine. It's currently occupied, as we know, by separatist groups. The territories are called the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. So there was a war in the Donbass region in 2014. 2014 is a huge year, by the way, in uh, Russo kind of Ukrainian relations. And I'll get to it in a second. This war is, of course, technically still ongoing. So in the area of pro-Russian separatists, um... And they're, I mean, they're using military force. There's Russian troops in the region right now. Russia recognizes the Donbass as um, independent from Ukraine. As the, the, the two areas are called the Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republics. So since the 21st of February 2022, so very recently, um, they broke the Minsk agreements the Minsk agreements were signed in 2014 and 2015, and they'd aimed to stop the conflict in the Donbass region, um, essentially, like, just to, to put an end to it. Putin just ignored the Minsk agreements. Um, the Minsk agreements were fairly weak and complex anyway, and um, not kind of the best example of, an in, of, a, of a kind of a diplomatic treaty. Again, I won't go into the, the ins and outs of it. What you need to know from that section is that the areas in the in Ukraine that he really had his eyes on were the Crimean region and the Donbass region. Okay, so Crimea is annexed and de facto recognized. De facto, not de jure, but de facto. The Donbass region um, is given so-called special status and even Ukraine's Ukrainians recognize this. Um, there's a Russian majority in these regions, but what about the rest of Ukraine and why is he, you know, why is he not happy to take these regions? Why is he aiming for the rest of Ukraine? So one thing that Putin is doing, he's justifying the invasion as protecting ethnic Russians in Ukraine, which he sees as, he sees Ukraine and Russia as intrinsically linked. He calls it, you know, little Russia. He just, he just sees Ukraine as an extension of Russia. Now, he is falsely claiming that there is a neo-Nazi far-right movement in the Ukraine, which is targeting ethnic Russians. Um, there is a far-right move movement in Ukraine. There's far-right movements all over Europe, but there's also far-right movements in Russia that he might want to take a look at as well while he's doing it, Vlad. Um, so it's not the reason. It just sounds like a good reason. It makes him sound that he's, you know, a saviour to ethnic Russians in Ukraine, that he's doing this out of, like, humanitarian reasons, which is ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous. But that's um that's how he's showing it to the people of Russia, that he's some sort of humanitarian saviour. like a propaganda thing. Exactly. Now, what is he actually looking for? What does he want? Okay. And these are just suppositions on my behalf, but um, these are kind of things that I think he's potentially looking for. One is that he's overextending to secure independence for the Donbass region that and, and Crimea, which he te which he has really anyway, um, that he's kind of 
if it's like a flex, like a real overextension. So that look, if I scare the bejesus out of the US, the EU, NATO, and even if I get pushed back out of Ukraine or I don't really achieve much, I'll at least get these regions. And that's more than I had to start with. Okay. Mm. What I think he's really doing, though, is that he's trying to restore Ukraine to pre-2014, the status quo before 2014, because that would mean that the uh, Ukraine will stay the hell away from NATO, basically, and they won't seek membership. So it looks like he's seeking a regime change and that um he's trying to get their leadership to fold. Okay. Um, so what happened in 2014? Why is that such a key year? Um, not only the annexation of Crimea, um, we have to kind of go back to the Orange Revolution in 2004. So it's a huge event in Ukraine. We remember it on the news at the time. What was the Orange Revolution? It was a series of protests and it followed the 2004 uh, Ukrainian presidential election. Now, there was a revote order because the public basically called shenanigans. Um, there's the more pro-West um Oh my God, I can't read my own. Oh, it's Yushenko. Sorry. I was like, what? I know his name. I just couldn't read my writing. Yushenko. So Yushenko, uh, Victor Yushenko emerged as the rightful winner over the pro-Russian Victor Yankovic. Okay, Yanukovych. Yanukovych. Oh my God. Is Yankovic weird Al? No. Yeah, but this is not, this is Yanukovic. Oh, I meant like the name, not yeah. the actual person. No, see, this is Yanukovic, <clears throat> whereas he's Yankovic, isn't he? Yeah, Yankovic. Yeah, Yankovic. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I don't know. Mm. So okay, I'll go back to this because it's complicated. There's the 2004 election is just complete. Initially, completely like corrupt, and eventually it emerges that the pro-West um, Yushchenko is the rightful winner over the Russian Viktor Yanukovych. Okay, now. It's also worth pointing out, by the way, that um, Yushchenko was poisoned, um, and which a lot of you will know. And if you look up pictures of him, you can see the effects that it had on his face and things like that. It's absolutely horrific. But he was eventually um, elected. Now, but, um, and that show, and that obviously would have really irritated Putin and would have frightened him a little bit because, um, again, it's too close. It's too close to home. Somebody who is has pro-Western kind of ideologies and links um now for a brief period Viktor Yanukovych the pro-Russian guy was elected in 2010 and what seems to be a free and fair election but he was forced out in the revolution of dignity in the Ukraine in February 2014 which was mainly focused of course in Kiev in the capital um I was looking up pronunciations of this the other day because I know that Ukra Ukrainians do not like it to be pronounced Kiev because that's the Russian pronunciation and I was trying to, um, there was a lady online and she was, she's Ukrainian and she was giving the proper, and she said that there's English speaking people will not be able to pronounce it properly because it's quite, it's like, she was kind of going like Kiev, like it was really, I can't do it. So she said, just say Kiev. So that's why I'm calling it that. Chicken Kiev. People. So Kiev, Kiev. Um, so in the revolution of dignity in 2014, the pro-Russian Yanukovych, he is ousted. Okay. And the current president of Ukraine is a guy called Vladimir Zelensky. He's been president since 2019. Now, just a side note, he has one of the most hilarious and ridiculous backgrounds I have ever seen a world yeah. leader have. It's mad, isn't um, it? 
Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, comedian, he played president on a TV show and is now the president. It is bonkers. But you know what? He's handling himself and um, and he's doing a great <clears throat> job. So solidarity to you, Zelensky. Um, now, he made several statements that he wished to unite the Ukrainian and the Russian people in Ukraine. He wanted to cease conflict with Russia. But he's also a major proponent of Ukrainian membership of NATO and the EU. And that's the issue. He was very vocal about that. That's the issue for Putin. He doesn't like this guy at all. They are not friends. They and never be friends. That's what Putin can't stand. They return to he wants it to return to its pre twenty fourteen status quo as a friend of Russia, as post as pro Russian, um, thus keeping NATO and the EU at bay. So a regime change seems to be what he's after here from Zelensky. Now um we've heard a lot of things about articles four and five of NATO. So a brief overview of those very quickly because they're all over the news. Article four is that any member can call for a consultation of the NATO Council when, quote, um the uh the territorial integrity, political independence or security of any of the parties is threatened. So essentially it's just communication between members. So it has just been invoked this week by Bulgaria the Czech Republic, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania and Slovakia. Um, and NATO have issued a statement saying that they are essentially defensive planning, defensive um, for, for these states which have invoked Article 4. And I think it's really interesting to look at those states that have invoked it. Um, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania and Poland being, um, being key states there. Romania, I suppose, as well. Um, so they have invoked that. Now it just would be talks and communication with the council. Article 5 then is is more serious. It's a commitment clause. Okay. So if one member is attacked, all members are attacked. That's basically it. Cool. It's, a, it's a collective kind of mutual defense agreement. So that would be all 30 states. Okay. Article 5 was invoked once in its history. Can you guess when? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm so sorry to put you on the spot. 2004. You're not far off. 9-11 by the US. So following 9-11, I just love the random guess that you just put out there. I wasn't expecting 9-11, oh God. So 9-11 by the oh. US, yeah. Okay, so what is, what is next? All right. It depends on what Putin is aiming for here. So for, the for a regime change, he'll just keep... Um, destroying Ukraine until eventually public pressure would probably force Zelensky out, you know. Mm. If he's looking for expansion and decides to go into the Baltic states, for example. Um, like Estonia or something? Yeah, like so if he decided exa exactly that's problematic because they are NATO members, NATO would have to respond. That would not be good for any of us. Mm. There are some pro-Russian members of government in Estonia and Lithuania. That's worth pointing that out, that there is quite a large pro-Russian contingent in these countries as well. But they have made requests for talks under Article 4. They've invoked Article 4 of NATO as well. So it's a very complicated situation. It would unfortunately, of course, if those countries are attacked, lead to war hmm. um he could of course uh turn his attention to moldova moldova is v moldovans at the moment i feel very sorry for them because they must be very nervous um it's also bordered by ukraine it is not an eu or a nato member oh god 
Um, and it also has a Russian breakaway state. So he has attacked, <clears throat> if you think about it, Georgia, which had Russian breakaway states. In, um, yeah. um, he attacked Ukraine, which had Russian breakaway states. Um, there is an area of Moldova called Transnistria. And it is possible that he might turn his attention there. Um, the EU, NATO, are not going to engage militarily in a state where the states are not members of of um, NATO. It's why they haven't engaged in Ukraine yet, or why they probably won't, because they're they're not a NATO state. It it it's it just comes down to that. Same with Moldova. So Moldova must be very, very nervous at the moment. Mm. Um so because he hasn't actually directly attacked any NATO states yet, there has been no military engagement from NATO. Instead, the decision from the EU and from the US has been to impose sanctions. Ooh, okay. Sanctions. And sanctions at the moment have been, of course, a real source of um kind of contention and controversy. So uh the US does export a lot of technological material to Russia, but Russia uh, has a are their central exports are um a huge issue so a massive issue and you will have heard this in the news so crude petroleum um they uh even refined petroleum uh lots of solid fuels like coal mm. um gas obviously as well um and that's that's an issue um now the US, the UK, Japan, Taiwan, Canada, New Zealand all um announced sanctions that target them financially. Mm. So target their financial sector, banks, oil refineries, military exports, etc. The thing big thing everybody's been talking about this week is SWIFT. Uh, two things I'll just explain very briefly. I'm nearly done. <laughs> SWIFT and the Nord Stream 2. So those are two big, big things. Um I had to read up a lot on Swift because I didn't fully understand it, but I, I think I'm fairly there now. Um, so it's Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. It's a global payment system. So it's a messaging system, essentially. It executes financial transactions and payments between banks. Swiftly. Okay. So if one bank is sending money to another bank, they would go through the Swift system. All right, it's a huge thing because these are big transactions. This is not monopoly money. We are talking trillions of dollars of money. Okay. Um, in essence, it would make it harder for Russian companies to do business with each other. Like in 2020, about 38 million transactions were sent each day over the Swift platform. Oh okay, so it, it's a huge thing. As of this podcast because this is going to change or, you know, things are going to happen. The EU, the US and the UK have agreed to exclude a number of Russian banks from SWIFT. Yes, okay. Now, Germany, Italy and France were very reluctant um, to impose serious sanctions because <clears throat> of the oil, natural gas and solid fuel exports and the business that they do with Russia. Um, and th speaking of Germany, that leads me on to discuss Nord Stream 2. So I'm sure some of you have seen that in the news as well. What is that? It's an undersea gas pipeline. So it leads directly from Russia to Germany. Okay. Um, there's no state in the middle. It goes from one straight to the other into northern Germany. It bypasses um, 
the Ukraine, it, it doesn't go down through Ukraine, for example, which was a source of real anger for Ukrainians and the US and NATO and the EU because it bypassed things like transit fees. It also really increased Russian influence and power because it was directly coming from Russia, this gas, into Central Europe, and it really kind of built up their influence. Um, now, Again, just very recently, the German Chancellor, um, Scholz, he suspended certification of the Nord Stream 2 on the 22nd of February following the invasion of Ukraine. So that's another way that they've been hit. Um, okay, finally, <laughs> what I will touch on very briefly is Ireland. Now, it's not, it's because we're living here, I guess, and some people have kind of questions around Ireland's perceived, I think, neutrality. Um I this is this was when I did my masters. I did a masters in international relations back in two thousand and eight. It was a long time ago now. Um, but my the key focus of my masters in international relations was Irish neutrality, or so called I should say Irish neutrality, and its position within the European Union in times like this, which is why this is a real source of um. It's obviously a source of sadness, but it's also a real source of interest. Mm-hmm. Um. So the word, I suppose, neutral, it exists very much in the in public consciousness, but it's not an official stance of Ireland. And that's important to know that it is not enshrined in our national constitution. For example, there is no mention of neutrality. It is a word that has very much been kind of propelled by the public. Simon Coveney, for example, our Minister of Foreign Affairs, his speech lately was very interesting because he essentially kind of said that we are not neutral in situations like this, but he referred to us as non-aligned, which... Um, um, which is very true. So, like, we're not a member of NATO. Um, we have no practical reason to involve ourselves in NATO at the moment. As a member of the EU, we will be involved in some way, shape, or form in this conflict. There's, there's no way out of that. We are, I suppose, the way I look at it is we're kind of politically aligned, but we're militarily non-aligned. So, by not being a member of um NATO. Where where we've no military involvement in this potential conflict. Okay, what I thought I'd do. Oh my god, I'm actually reading from my own MA thesis, which I'm just realizing now is really, really um, just so arrogant. But I I had to. It's been since two thousand and eight that I wrote this, so I had to brush up on it myself. Um, what I'll do, I'll just read the little conclusion at the end of it, and it, I think it'll explain. I hope it'll explain the position of Irish neutrality quite well. Um, and where we're at at the moment, because there's such confusion around it, whether, like, what is our official stance? That's the problem. We don't have an official stance. It's changeable, and it's up to successive governments to decide exactly what that position is. It's not legally enshrined, and that's important to know that. Um, Okay, so I'll just skip ahead a little bit there. Now, I wrote here... Um, so why the seemingly huge attachment to neutrality among the Irish people? If other European countries who have older and more traditional policies of neutrality can abandon their policies without much fuss, why can't Ireland? It would seem the Irish people associate Irish neutrality with some sort of moral crusade, a demonstration of sovereignty which must be maintained at all cost. The Irish struggle for independence left much of the population with a deep-seated and emotional resentment towards the British. This resentment was still evident at the outbreak of the Second World War. The treaty ports had been handed back in 1938 and this added to the fact that the Irish government were now free to make a first demonstration of sovereignty and freedom. They could now choose whether they would or would not become involved in a British war. Although the decision to remain neutral was made among more 
pragmatic lines and the Irish government did give useful assistance to the Allied cause. The war of words which ensued between Winston Churchill and Eamon de Valera after the war reminded people that the old tensions still existed. There is no um, doubt that neutrality was a successful wartime policy for Ireland. When Winston Churchill made a verbal attack on the Irish policy of neutrality, de Valera defended the Irish position admirably. Okay, however, on the post-war international stage, Ireland faced isolationism. Many felt that the Irish had stood idly by while some of the worst atrocities in human history had taken place. Therefore, the Irish had to defend the policy of neutrality by associating it with more noble aims, as Doherty notes. Uh, neutrality therefore had to be infused with a sense of moral superiority and the rhetoric of independence in order to justify it. So this is where the myth of traditional neutrality was born. The more the policy of neutrality is associated with Irish independence and sovereignty, the more the Irish population want to hold on to it. As seen in Chapter 4, members of the Irish public are willing to accept Irish involvement in peacekeeping. However, as already seen, they are not willing to see an abandonment of neutrality. What much of the Irish public don't understand, however, is that the traditional neutrality, which they believe has been vital to Irish foreign policy over the years, is not a constitutionally enshrined policy and holds no legal value in an international sense. It is a vague policy which the government has bended in order to suit EU integration. However, while the public remains so emotionally attached to neutrality and while it is viewed as an ideological policy, the government will not be allowed to abandon the term neutral from future uh, rhetoric. Now, it's interesting that I wrote that in 2008 because that's basically what Simon Coveney did mention those two terms neutral and militarily non-aligned and mm-hmm. and that's where we are more we're military non-aligned that's because we're not a member of any collective defense agreements or anything like that but um while we're in the European Union we're certainly not politically non-aligned and we're certainly not going to be completely um uninvolved in this conflict in terms of politics in terms of um diplomacy Oh my dear, dear God, that was, I tried to do it as quickly as I possibly could. Okay. That was beautiful, amazing um, research. I hope it very, made very sense. Coherent, absolutely. Flew through it. That was um, amazing. I was going to discuss international relations theories um, to help kind of understand how states act in situations like this, but I'm going to save that for the next episode, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I was going to say, it's um, amazing for the next episode. And uh, yeah, um, yeah, it would, it, it, it's, I've been reading John Mersheimer again. I read him during my MA and I think it's, it's actually brought back even though this is a really tragic thing, it's brought back a lot of um, the, why I studied international relations and why it was such an important um, and why I'm really glad that I did it now. Um, mm. It helps me to understand events like this and hopefully have communicated that well to you guys. I'm going to go nap forever now. <laughs> <laughs> that was absolutely amazing, the research. It is very coherent. I thought you just called me Louise and I was like... Louise? There you go. That was amazing, Louise. I don't know why I heard that. I'm... Losing my mind. I think I am a little bit. Just a little dizzy right there. Mm -hmm. Um, My topic for today is relatable uh, in terms of uh, who I'm focusing on, I suppose, or why I'm focusing on this person. Uh Um, It was just based on observing questionable leaders or figures in Russian, you know, history, which was obviously influenced, I suppose, by the world's current observation of Vladimir Putin. Yeah. but as I scoured the internet for reasonable suggestions, um, you know, I came across two potentially interesting figures. One being uh, a person by the name of Sviatopolk, the Accursed, and the other being Malyuta Skorotov. So I popped these two fellas up in a poll on the What's the History oh, Insta story. That, yeah. So that our listeners could help me figure out which one to research. And well, y'all uh, went for Malyusha, who won by a fairly chunk of a percentage. So oh, you. I thought people would go for the accursed. I know, I 
I was kind of feeling yeah. the vibe and his picture was fairly dramatic, you know, on the, on the story. Maybe, maybe people were like, we've had enough misery to last us yeah. a lifetime. I'm like, sorry, guys. Well, <laughs> I prepare know. yourselves for round two of misery. No. Oh, no, it's not that bad. Uh, but I, today, yeah, I'm going to tell you all about uh, Maluta or Skuratov because that's who the people voted for. And this is a democratic podcast. I'm sorry, but not in there. Um, the, the, you're like, are we? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're not. We love democracy. Democracy forever. Take that, Putin. Um, so the one thing I will say is that there is not a whole lot about Malusha out there. But what I do know mm-hmm. is that in order for you all to, to know about Malusha, um, is we have to take a look at another man by the name of Ivan, better known as Ivan, Ivan the, the terrible. terrible. There we go now. He was a terrible lad. Wasn't oh, he? he was terrible. He was terrible. Oh, was, imagine he's like, yeah. Well, if you were called Ivan the Terrible, you'd be terrible too. <laughs> well, the term "terrible" that's applied to Ivan here isn't actually one to kind of suggest that he was a terrible person. It's more like he struck terror and fear into um, his opponents. Yes, mm. yes, yes. But we'll only understand the significance of Malusha through. You know, though the information is limited through Ivan, the terrible story. So let's take a look at Ivan. And um, he was the first son of a man by the name of Vasily III and his second wife, Vasily's second wife, Elena Glinskava. Glinskava? Elena's a nice name. It is. It's a lovely mm. name. Hi to all the Elenas out there. And they're like, shut up. Um, I don't know why. They... <laughs> why are they so aggressive? <laughs> Like, maybe they're really sad after after my piece they're like well not sad we're all doomed educated yeah. and, you know informed and then there's me going hi Elena <laughs> just interrupting their day but Vasily III was the Grand Prince of Moscow from 1505 to 1533 so we're floating around the 16th century here now on Vasily's side okay so this is Ivan the Terrible's father's side of the family Vasily's mother or Ivan's grandmother, was a Greek princess and a member of the Byzantine Peleologus family. So basically, she would have been the daughter of a man, uh, Ivan's great-grandfather, uh, a man named um, Thomas Peleologus, who was the younger brother of the last Byzantine emperor, Constantine XI. Okay? I love that we pick, I do it as well, like the most difficult names to oh, pronounce. Yeah. Oh yeah. And like when I was reading over my thing I was there like oh the names were no bother to me I was flying through them and then the minute you're recording you're like I can't pronounce these names it's it's so difficult it's, it's just you put yourself on this it's just fierce you put pressure. yourself on the spot you do yeah fierce pressure yeah okay fierce yeah. pressure it's like look let's just get this straight here a second okay yeah. when sorry no not targeting Americans but I'm saying one time I was in the street uh, I was in Adair in County Limerick and there were some American tourists there and they pointed over at a shop, which uh, above the shop, the name was Ashling. But they were like, oh, look, Aislings. So <laughs> I'm just saying we're not the only ones that get name pronunciations wrong. Okay? That's true. This that's is true. me on the defense, isn't it? I'm really <laughs> defensive. I'm like, oh, my God, you get, you get names wrong too. Um, but now we're going back to Ivan, okay? And now we're looking at his mother's side of things. So Elena. Hi to all the Elenas. Uh, well, Elena's mother, or Ivan's grandmother, was a Serbian princess. And her father's family, named as the Glinskys, claimed to be descendants of... <laughs> sorry, this sounds really Irish. The Glinskys. How are you? Where are you from? I'm sorry. I'm from Glinsky. I'm going to just... Okay. Yeah. You were so good during I my piece. I was very good. And you're just like... <laughs> so just, I, I know, and I'm so bold. And I just, stop. Ah, stop. Sorry. It's all good. Okay. No, I like when you talk. I like... You know, I know, I do. It's great band. The listeners are like, shut up. Not at all. Um, but they claim to be descendants of, a hung, uh, of Hungarian nobility. 
and of the Mongol ruler Mamai. I'll leave Mamai for another day. Mamai! <laughs> okay, I'm stopping. I'm stopping. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm what good. were you singing? Waterloo. Oh, I thought you were singing Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Mamai! Mamai! Oh, is that really the words? Oh, yeah. I think so. Mamai? We'll look it up. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my. Oh, my, my. Anyway. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Okay. I can't look at you. Um, so our boy Ivan, anyway, he comes from good stock, it would seem, let's just say that. Or elite stock by the sounds of it. So anyway, Ivan was born to his parents on August 25th, 1530. What do you like? <laughs> Is this the rescue? It's thing the all same over thing. Again? It's just superfluous <laughs> detail. He was born to his parents. <laughs> Thank you. His parents made love. <laughs> And Ivan was born. So when you, what did you say? Rasputin was conceived or something, or he conceived I a said, child. Um, it was so funny. I said they conceived. Or yeah. No, or I you said he made love to his wife or something. Yeah. Stop, we can't go back. We can only go forward. <laughs> Quit living in the past. I'm like, it's literally a history podcast. <laughs> oh God, I'm sorry. I'm fine. I'm okay, good. I'm going to stop interrupting your story. And we'll now. see how long you can okay. go. Just I'm just not going to look at your yeah, eyes Yeah, just don't look at each other and we'll be fine. So little Ivan lived a lovely life until when he was three years old. He lived a lovely life until he was three. <laughs> it's the way you write these things. It's not my fault. I'm just going to turn away from you. I'm so sorry. Okay, little Ivan lived a lovely life until he he was three years old. Um, His father, Vasily, died from an abscess infection in his leg, um, ultimately dying from sepsis or in simpler terms, blood poisoning. So uh, with Vasily kicking the bucket, uh, the closest contenders to the throne, except for young Ivan, were the younger brothers of Vasily. Nevertheless, Ivan was proclaimed as the Grand Prince of Moscow at the request of his father. So Elena, his mother, initially acted as a regent, but she died in 1538 when Ivan was only eight years old, many believing that she was, surprise, surprise, poisoned. Oh. Um, so poisoning seems to be a they bit They like of, to do think, that, don't they? Yeah. They yeah. Like they're poisoning, don't they? They, were, like, they do. Sorry, Russia, I'm not... Not, pe- not, not all Russians. Not, not all Russians. Not all into the one Just, you know, there. I know for Russians for it to be a bit of a problem, let's yeah, be honest. There, there's definitely a few babushkas yeah. out there that are, you know, just thinking about poisoning people. But like, <laughs> I don't know why I said that and it was pointless. And I'm sorry. Uh, on the 16th of January, 1547, at the tender age of 16, Ivan was crowned at the Cathedral of the Dormition of the Moscow Kremlin. So he's crowned as the Tsar of all Russians. Um, partially imitating his grandfather, Ivan III the Great, uh, who had claimed the title of Grand Prince of all Rus. Until then, okay, rulers of Muscovy were crowned as Grand Princes, but Ivan III the Great had styled himself Tsar in his correspondence. So two weeks after his coronation, Ivan married his first wife, Anastasia Romanov, a member of the Romanov family who became the first Russian... Sorry, I can't even say it. Sorry, Strasa. Thank you so much. Sorry, is it her? Sorry, uh, Oh, yeah. So by being crowned Tsar, Ivan was sending a message to the world and to Russia that he was now the only supreme ruler of the country and his will was not to be questioned at 16 years old. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Boss. Mm-hmm. 
So the new title not only secured the throne, but also granted Ivan a new dimension of power that was uh, intimately tied to religion. And he was now a divine leader appointed to enact God's will, as church texts described Old Testament kings as Sars and Christ as the heavenly Sar. Mm. The newly appointed title was then passed on from generation to generation. Now, the early part of Ivan's reign was one of peaceful reforms and modernization, despite calamities triggered by the Great Fire of 1547. So the Great Fire of Moscow in 1547 destroyed sections of Moscow that had been built almost entirely of wood. Uh, the fire swept into the Kremlin and blew up the powder stores and several of the Kremlin's towers. And the fire displaced about 80,000 people and Whoa. killed about 2,700 to 3,700 people, not including children, and led to widespread poverty among survivors. Anyway, Ivan revised the law code uh, in the country and he created the Sudnik of 1550. He founded a standing army called the Strelsky. Sorry, I need to just make sure I pronounce that correctly. Strelsky. Strelsky. He established the Zimsky Sober, which is the first Russian parliament of feudal estates and the Council of the Nobles, known as the Chosen Council. And he confirmed the position of the church with the Council of the Hundred Chapters, which unified the rituals and ecclesi... I can do it. I can do it. Ecclesiastical. Ecclesiastical, is it? Ecclesiastical, thank you. I, I did this I did this, this morning. I sat there. I pronounced the word in my head. I worded it out with my mouth. And here I am, wrecking up my life. Regulations of the whole country. He introduced local self-government to rural regions, mainly in the northeastern Russian areas populated by the state peasantry. Peasants. Now, Ivan ordered in 1553 the establishment of the Moscow Print Yard, and the first printing press was introduced to Russia. Several uh, religious books in Russian were printed during the 1550s and 1560s. The new technology provoked discontent among traditional scribes, which led to the print yard being burned down in oh. an arson attack. Wow, okay. And the first Russian printers uh, named Ivan Fedorov and Peter, uh, I, I gotta get this right, Mistilafets, were forced to flee from Moscow uh, to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Nevertheless, the printing of books resumed from 1568 onwards, and um, basically everything was kind of sorted there. We'll just leave that at like that. Uh, but Ivan had St. Ba uh, Basil's Cathedral constructed in Moscow to commemorate the seizure of Kazan. Hmm. There is a legend that he was so impressed with the structure that he had the architect, Posnik Yakovlev, blinded so that he could never design anything as beautiful again. However, Posnik uh, really went on to design more churches for Ivan and the walls of the Kazan Kremlin in the early 1560s, as well as the chapel over St. Basil's grave, which was added to St. Basil's Cathedral in 1588, several years after Ivan's death. So he wasn't blinded or killed or stopped, you know, history sometimes, or people just like to twist up, you know, a few legends and rumours. Um, and then I suppose um, other events of the period include the introduction of the first laws restricting the mobility of peasants, which would eventually lead to serfdom and were instituted during the rule of the future Tsar Boris Gudnov in 1597. So the 1560s brought to Russia hardships that led to a dramatic change of Ivan's policies. Russia was devastated by a combination of drought, famine, unsuccessful wars against the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, uh, Tatar invasions and the sea trading blockade carried out by the Swedes, the Poles, etc. Ivan's first wife, Anastasia died in 1560, 
Uh, and yes, we said that there was a suspected poisoning here going on again. But this personal tragedy deeply affected Ivan. It hurt him. And it's thought to have absolutely kind of damaged his mental well-being. Okay. So at the time, one of Ivan's advisors, a man by the name of Prince Andrei Kurbsky, defected to the Lithuanians, took command of the Lithuanian troops and devastated the Russian region. Uh, the series of treasons made Ivan paranoid, okay, and suspicious of nobility. So we're getting close now because this is meant to be all about Malusha. You know, and it's really yeah, all about I Ivan. I know, we're getting there. I'm Don't like, you worry. Don't you worry. Yo, Goober. <laughs> On the 3rd of December, 1564, Ivan departed Moscow for Alexandrova Sloboda, where he sent two letters in which he announced his abdication because of the alleged embezzlement and treason of the aristocracy and the clergy. Now, the Boyer court. So what is a Boyer? Do you know what that is? No. Um. Well, Boyer are... It was a member of the highest rank of the feudal Bulgarian, Russian, okay, Moldovian, and later Romanian, Lithuanian, Baltic, Germany, nobility. Okay. okay. So they're second to princes around the place, if you know what I mean. Okay. Right. Okay. So I hear a little man out there. Is he he's, okay? He's upset. He's crying over something. Come over to us. I know what's wrong with him. Well, I pause it just for yes, a second. Yes, pause it. We'll be right back. And we're back. We're back. <laughs> we're back. Oscar just needed the... The, the facilities. The little boy's room. Yeah. So basically, um, I was just explaining what a boyer was, but the boyer court was unable to rule in Ivan's absence after his abd- abdication, and they feared the wrath of Muscovite citizens. So a boyer envoy departed for Alexandra uh, Sloboda to beg Ivan to return to the throne. Ivan agreed to return on the condition of being granted absolute power he demanded the Reich to condemn and execute traitors and confiscate their estates without interference from the Boyer Council or Church. So Ivan decreed the creation of something called the Opuchina. Now, this is important. Okay. Um, that was a separate territory within the borders of Russia, mostly in the territory of the former uh, Novgorod Republic in the north. Ivan held exclusive power over this territory and the Boyer Council ruled uh, the land, okay, the second division of the state. So Ivan also recruited a personal guard known as the Oprichitniki. Originally, it numbered 1,000 people. Okay. Now, the op, sorry, Oprichitniki were headed by none other than Malyusha Skorotov. Ah, okay, so here we go. Mm-hmm. Now, the Oprichniki enjoyed social and economic privileges under the Oprichnina. It's hard words. They owed their allegiance and status to Ivan, not hereditary or local bonds. The first wave of persecutions targeted primarily the princely clans of Russia, notably the influential families of Suzdal. So Ivan executed, exiled, or forcibly tortured prominent members of the Boyer clans. So he's carrying out these plans, on, uh, and he carried out all these executions and stuff on questionable accusations of conspiracy. So he doesn't trust this Boyer council. Okay. He starts to become more and more paranoid, okay? Okay. And this is kind of, this is where Malyush is really coming in. So among those executed um, were the Metropolitan Philip and the prominent warlord Alexander Gorbaty Shusky. In 1566, Ivan extended the Opportunina to eight central districts. So he's expanding this new area he's created with absolute control. And of the 12,000 nobles, 570 became Opportuniki and the rest were expelled. 
So under new political systems, the opportunity were given large estates, but unlike previous landlords, could not be held accountable for their actions. Um, so they're horrible people, basically. So let's look at Malusha. OK, so Malusha rises to prominence in 1569 for his role in the trial and execution of Prince Vladimir of Staryska, Ivan's only cousin, and a possible claimant to the throne of the Tsardom of Russia. So we're finally getting to Malusha. OK, we're here, we're here, we're here. See, Vladimir Staryska spent his childhood under strict surveillance in Moscow. In 1542, he was reinstated in his father's uh, appendages. I can't say that word. And basically, he married and lived in peace until the Sarah fell mortally ill. Long story short, okay, because I'm going to shorten this down. Um, just to get myself just uh, re-familiarized here. Basically, Vladimir would have been entitled to go, you know, take the throne or the Sardom. Okay. Right? But <clears throat> obviously, Ivan becomes um, the Tsar yeah. of him. And basically... Uh, Ivan became paranoid um, about his cousin, this prince. Mm. So in, in 1564, the Opportuniks, led by Malusha, uh, they burnt Vladimir's palace down in Moscow, and most of his lands were confiscated and given to the, the members of the Opportunina. In 1569, accused of high treason by Ivan, Vladimir and his children were forced to take poison at Ivan's residence. Uh, his mother and wife, who resided uh, nearby, were forcibly drowned in the Shetna River d several days later. And guess who spearheaded all of that? Malnusha. Oh, God. Now, let's talk about this metropolitan of uh, Moscow, Philip, okay? In December 1569, by order of Ivan, Malnusha Skoratov strangled a former metropolitan of Moscow named Philip II for his criticism of the Opportunina. So this guy becomes known as St. Philip II of Moscow. He's made a saint years later. Um... But long story short, again, um, it's widely believed that the Tsar had him murdered on that account. And but basically, Ivan had this monk imprisoned, chained, metal around his neck, the whole lot uh, for quite some time before Malusha was sent into his prison cell to strangle him. Oh, for and he did so. And then the final part here, OK, before we end up, you know, I need to conclude this. Um, on January 1571, Malyusha led um, an expedition against a city called uh, Novgorod, killing thousands of its citizens on suspicion of treason against Ivan. This is also known as the Massacre of Nov sorry, Novgorod. Although initially an act of vengeance against the perceived treason uh, by the local Orthodox Church, this massacre quickly became possibly the most vicious and the brutal legacy of the Opportunina, with casualties estimated between 2,000 to 15,000 people. And it was um, carried out under extreme, very violent acts of cruelty. In the aftermath of this attack, um, Novgorod lost its status as one of Russia's leading cities, was crippled by decimation of its citizens. And again, the farmlands were all burned around the area. And Malyusha was having himself a grand old time there, carrying all of this out. So he's quite a questionable figure and there's not a lot of information on him. But I suppose it should go without saying that at some point sooner or later, both men eventually met their fates. Malyusha was killed two years later after leading that massacre. Uh, he was killed during the siege of Weichenstein, which was in Estonia during the Livonian War. As for Ivan, do you want to know how he died? Yes. He died from a stroke while he was playing chess with one of his close associates oh. on the 28th of March, 1584. And Kish agrees. Kish like, yes. It was an interesting Finally. death. 
Um, he got very stressed playing chess, so he did. He obviously it happens. Lost it. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes I'm overthinking and I just get really you just get sh- just yeah. the shivers. Mm-hmm. But upon Ivan's death, the Russian throne was left to his unfit middle son Fyodor, a weak-minded figure. Apparently, Fyodor died childless in 1598, which ushered in uh, the time of the trouble troubles. And um, the time of the troubles would become a period of political crisis during the Tsardom of Russia, which began in 1598 with the death of Fyodor I and ended in 1613 with the accession of Michael, the first of the House of Romanov. And as we know, as we can conclude, <laughs> Russian history is long, very, very long. Yeah. Um, but this is just a little snippet out of that time, I suppose. That was really interesting. Well, it was, I suppose, interesting to try and research somebody that I've never heard of before. Yeah, no, that was, I really, I found that really... When you kind of dwindle it all down, yeah. Mayusha was just this leader of this police, police, I it's suppose. It's kind of reminiscent of like the Stalinist purges almost. That's kind of what it was like, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Go. massacre of Novgorod was absolutely yeah. wild. Um, But yeah, I suppose the common well, thing thank around you for this... That. This particular episode is war and the war conflict. Um, yeah, and and I'll talk about at some point the uh, the international relations theories that kind of um, that explain why states act the way they do and mm. how in times of conflict and in times of peace. Mm. I wanted to keep that short as short as I could because there's so much information <laughs> lingering there's, all over the place. This is a, this has been a really packed episode, mm. but yeah, I'm gonna look at Mamai next time. Mamai, I just wanted to um, yeah, Mamai. I guess we wanted. To, discuss the context of Ukraine because I know mm. that people are I had a, somebody actually say to me the other day that they want to learn more about it but they don't they almost don't want to look stupid and I think that that's a fear all of including me especially when you have a degree in this you're like people assume you kind of know everything and you're like no like I'm still learning I'm still picking up things and it's just important to research and research well and responsibly and we can't know everything all the time you can't keep all of this information constantly in your head so I will um, say one thing about that like there's a lot of video circulating without any context being given you know videos taken back yeah there's a lot of deep fakes out there there's a lot of propaganda there's a lot of exactly it's a lot of trolling there's a lot of Mm. all that sort of stuff so just be very careful, careful what yeah. you're looking at um and uh, yeah like it, it's just it's a it's a unusual time i literally just read there that the eu are sending arms to the ukraine there's just mm-hmm. lots of things going on so it's just um it's important to be um i suppose just calm about the situation but also mm-hmm. have solidarity with what's happening and um solidarity with with the innocent people that are yeah you know, there's there's good people on both sides. There are Russian people out there, you know, that don't support this as well. Of course. You and know? I I actually linked on my Facebook places that you can donate to kind of responsibly mm-hmm. that are like fact checked and whatever. So maybe Legit. we might put those up on the page as well if you yeah. feel like because I think a lot of people want to help but don't really know how to. And I think that that's very understandable. I was kind of the same. You don't really know where to start or what can you do or what, you know, mm-hmm. how can you help? Um, There are ways. So we might post some information i um, think that'd be great thanks yeah. for listening and i hope i hope it helped even though i blitzed through it for 45 minutes it's obviously a really complex thing and um the the key i suppose really is um is nato being too close to getting too close to putin and he doesn't like it and um trying to keep ukraine as far away from the west as possible ideologically mm-hmm. and politically and that's kind of the the ins and outs of it is russia really? represented by a bear yeah, I think. Don't poke the, the bear. bear. <laughs> no, man, no. Um. Okay. So, thanks everyone for listening, and 
it would be lovely if by the time this episode goes out next week there would be an end to all of this but it's highly unlikely i know there's talks um about to happen but we can all um you know wish and send out oh just thoughts that uh that all of this will will end and um end somewhat peacefully as peacefully as it's humanly possible anyway mm-hmm. but um until then we will chat to you all next week have a lovely week everybody goodbye Bye. <laughs> that's beautiful <laughs>